like to turn with you this evening to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Three simple questions for you tonight. Three simple questions for us to ponder. What is God? What is that? And how do we know? Three simple questions. But of course we must turn to the Bible. Some people say the Bible is just a product of man's thought. But the Bible is a holy supernatural book. Anyone who considers it the product only of man's thought either hasn't really studied it closely and carefully or they're willfully avoiding the truth or both. This is a book so unprecedented, so unique, so different from every other piece of literature, so many authors, so long in its writing, and yet one theme, one glorious message from the oldest book, Job, right through to Revelation, the youngest. And the predictions it makes, so extraordinary. No other sacred literature ever makes such predictions. The selling of Israel back into Egypt as slaves and that no man would buy them is predicted over a thousand years before it took place. And Josephus, the historian, confirms that it did. The collapse of Babylon, the rise of Cyrus, who is named 150 years before he rises, the destruction of the temple not once but twice. All these and many other events predicted by the scripture. And then the death, the death of our glorious Messiah in triumph, in triumph, in victory. This too is foreseen and foretold at the heart of the scripture. And then the gathering back of Israel into its land, not once, not twice, but I believe three times. Well, this is a very remarkable book. And its understanding and its analysis of man and his plight is particularly penetrating. No psychologist, no politician, no philosopher gets anywhere near the Bible for, for the grasp, the analysis of the state of this deceitfulness of the heart of man or his depravity, nor at the same time this fierce sense of what is right. But where the Bible really excels is in its description of God. In this respect, it excels over all the other. Here we have an ocean in a cup. We have a whole mountain range in a handful. Here we have a divine telescope by which we can see even the furthest of galaxies in our own bedroom. There are some very profound paradoxes in the Bible, some very mysterious things said of God, and yet they're couched in such simple and plain language. He is holy. He is just. He is true. He is faithful. He is unchanging. He is absolutely sovereign over the world and over all events. He is the God of complete control. And sometimes these seeds of truth are expressed so simply that they're almost designed to plant themselves in our mind for us to meditate on. Such short expressions. God is spirit, the Saviour says. 
He's holy other. He is invisible. He is eternal, powerful, and irresistible. Always present and yet always above. Always outside us and yet alongside us. God is light. He exposes. He reveals. He instructs. He illuminates and broadens our minds and our hearts. He guides and directs. And in him there is no darkness at all. No shade of malice or pride or pretense whatsoever. God is light. But it's this simple expression which we find twice. And in this chapter alone, God is love. That I want to rest our minds with this evening and weigh up and reflect on. You see, the relationship, the extent of the relationship between these two words, God and love, is peculiarly strong. Look at verse 7 of the chapter 4 that we read. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. Love gives birth to love. Love is known by love. And love, true love of this kind, comes only from God. Everyone that loveth is born of God. Or again, look at verse 8, the converse, the opposite. He says, he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. He that does not love has no vocabulary to speak this language. He that does not love is tone deaf to the music of who God is and what God is like. He that does not love cannot see this image, this portrait of God. Some of you may say, well, I'm not very good at mathematics. I don't like mathematics and I avoid it. We know that many people say this. But if you want to be an engineer, you'll find it very difficult without mathematics Mathematics is the lifeblood of mechanical engineering and electrical engineering. You can't really do engineering without maths. And it's much more true of God. You cannot know God without understanding his love and without experiencing it. God is love. Have you ever dealt with a dentist who's never seen a tooth? Have you ever dealt with a vet who's never been able to recognise a cat? Well... So it is with a theologian who has a stony heart, who has a cold and reserved spirit and never loves. He's out of his element. He's like a fish out of water. He doesn't know God. Or look again at verse 12. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. God is dwelling in us when we express this true and deep and real Christian love. When we know this experience of God's love and reflect it one to another. And his love, his love, not ours, is perfected in us as we love. Very extraordinary. Or again, look at verse 16. And we know, we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Do you see, friends? It's almost as though God and love are identical in these verses, almost. 
If you tried to substitute for the word love in those verses justice or truth or wisdom or light, you'd only get a partial fit. You'd only get a, 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 the, the glove wouldn't fit the hand properly. But love and God, they are so deeply intertwined. Love is so much at the very heart of who God is. It is the supreme and most glorious expression of his being. And in some aspects, almost indistinguishable from him himself. Love and God are very deeply intertwined. Well, that brings us to our second question. What is love? What is love? Seems like a very obvious question. But no society, I think, in history has ever confused what love is so badly before. We think it's obvious, but actually we need to learn a lot about love. Now, some teachers, particularly amongst Muslims and Jews, like to answer questions about God by negatives. They look at their, they try to explain God uh, by negatives. And so do some Christian theologians too. They say, for example, God never lies, or God never dies, and God never changes. You can see there's some value in this approach of using negatives. So we'll start by looking at some negatives, not because we want to follow them, but because it's useful for us to understand. So there are some things that love is not. One thing that's very important to establish at the beginning is this. Love is not God. Love is not God. Although it's true to say that God and love are very closely intertwined, there is more to God than love. For example, think of that other very simple seed expression, God is a consuming fire, which we find in Deuteronomy 4.24 and Hebrews 12.29. He is holy. He is just. Not all of his acts are only love, and he will punish sin. So on the one hand, we say love is God, but that's not the same thing as saying that God is, sorry, we say that God is love, but we don't say that love is God. We don't deify and worship love as though it itself were God. There is a distinction. And of course, it's very true to say that love is not lust. And perhaps this is the great flaw of our generation in human love to confuse love and lust. And one very clear example from the Old Testament, a rather extreme example, but it makes it very clear, is Amnon. Amnon was the son of King David, and he felt passionately in love, we would say, with a young woman, his half-sister, Tamar. He was so passionately fond of her, so it seems, that he fell sick, and he was lying on his bed, and his desire for her swallowed him up. He was passionately in love, we would say, in our modern generation, in our speech. But his desire for her, because of the way he handled it, because of the way it was directed, destroyed him. And it destroyed her. And sex outside of marriage usually is not love, it's malice. Usually it's exploitative. Usually it's destructive. It's only within the covenant of marriage that romantic love can blossom into true and strong and real love. Oh, friends, I wonder if you've seen those poor ladies in Afghanistan, and some in England too, who've been attacked with acid 
And there you can see their faces before and after these beautiful, attractive young ladies and then a jealous boyfriend or an angry uh, enemy of the family have poured battery acid over their face. You can see the terrible melting of their nose and their features and the intense pain and difficulty. Well, that's exactly what lust does to us. That's what lust can do in our hearts. And in particular, pornography. It disfigures the soul. It ruins the heart. It sears conscience. It damages relationships. So love is certainly not lust. Human love, and of course, love is not indulgence. Love is not just giving in to to desires. Love is not just um, pampering. I wonder if you remember Eli in the first chapter of 1 Samuel. He was very fond, no doubt, of his two sons. Uh, But the two boys were corrupting the worship in the temple. They were sleeping with the women around the tent. And instead of removing them, instead of disciplining them, all he could do is weakly reprove them. And uh, it resulted in his death and their death because he didn't love them. Love is not indulgence. Love is not flattery. That's malice. Love is very different from that. Nor is love just sentiment. It's not just feelings. Yes, of course, sometimes love leads to the most intense passions. We feel like a ship rocked in a hurricane, in a a hurricane of thoughts and passions and feelings. Uh, And so sometimes love can lead to very, very strong feelings. But feelings come and go. And uh, the essence of love is not just in feeling, not in sentiment. Nor is love just tolerance. Tolerance is a a precious fruit of Christianity in our society. Perhaps it's wearing thin now. And God certainly is patient and slow to anger. But just to say, let's live and let live. Let each man to his own. As long as they do, do no harm to others. That's not love. That's not real love. As we saw in Leviticus, love has a different kind of character. We love our neighbours ourselves. We won't hate them. We won't let, let sin to rest upon them. So what is divine love? Well, divine love is life. Look at verse 14 of chapter 3, just a chapter earlier. We know that we are passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Real life involves love. Real life can be measured by love. The less loving we are, the less alive we are. The more loving we are, the more alive we are. And of course, for somebody outside of of grace, outside of Christ, that love is not the same as God's, as we shall see. Love is life. Love is also light. If you look at chapter 2 and verse 10, you'll see this. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light. And there's no occasion of stumbling in him. He sees the way ahead. But he that hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and knows not whither he goes because that darkness has blinded his eyes. Love is light. It illuminates our path. It illuminates our relationships. It informs us. And then one other thing too. Love is fellowship. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1 that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that 
you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. God calls us to this fellowship of love. In God is love himself. But divine love is also, means tread carefully here, selective. It's selective. If you find that difficult, let me bring you to view a young red-headed athlete. He was the apple of his father's eye. He was a handsome young man, a keen huntsman, and a keen cook. And if you were to listen to him and his godly father talking, you would have heard them laughing and chatting and communing with each other while his younger brother stays behind in the kitchen with his mama. Esau was blessed with love, with gifts, and with many privileges and opportunities. He had an amazing grandfather, Abraham. He had a wise father, Isaac. But he lost out. He lost out on the love of God. He neglected the love of God. He sold his birthright, and he lost out on the blessing of his father. And in a very mysterious statement, God says later, Esau have I hated, and Jacob have I loved. What's this? The God of love? The God who is love? Is hating Esau? How do we understand this? Well, this is very mysterious. Is it possible that God could be unkind or unfair? No. Esau had every blessing, every privilege. He had teaching, he had discipline, he had a glorious example set before him, and he'd heard warning. But he despised it. He neglected it. And he was distracted by his love for the world. And when it came to the acid test of his life, his marriage, he chose beautiful women, but they were ugly to God. They were idolaters. They were worshippers of the gods of Canaan. And they were a great grief to his parents. And he chose two wives, two, to add insult to injury. God is love. Esau knew his kindness, but he didn't know its depth. He knew his lenience. He knew his tolerance. He knew his patience. But he didn't know his communion. He despised God, and God rejected him. The amazing thing, though, is not that Esau was rejected but that Jacob was loved. When you consider Jacob's character, and we won't go into this tonight, but there's some extraordinary things in Jacob's life, and yet God loved him. God's love is selective. Imagine you were with Noah and his family as they go into the ark, and you hear the cries and the shouts of the people outside and the terrible catastrophe of the deluge. Where is God's love? Where is God's love? It doesn't seem to be the outside. There it is in the ark, in that family saved. Was God unkind? Was he unfair? Was he unjust to the world? No. For a hundred years, Noah had been calling them and pleading with them and warning them with all his heart. For the last hundred years, he'd entreated them to follow him. But now their blood is on their own heads. They'd had so much blessing so much privilege, but the world had become so full of sin, so full of violence, so full of wickedness, that God wipes them out. God is love. But the love was manifested particularly in the ark. 
in the ark, in that provision for Noah's family. Or again, think of Lot as he leaves Sodom, as the whole city turns into an inferno behind him. You might well say, well, where is God? Where is God's love? How can we say that God is love? But you know, the miracle of that event was that Lot was spared. When you look at the narrative of Abraham pleading with God and the angels reasoning with and arguing with Lot and his family and the mocking of his son-in-laws, it's a miracle that Lot was delivered at all. Three quarters of his family escaped by grace, grace alone, and he escaped by the mere skin of his teeth from that wicked city. But again, was God unkind to Sodom? He warned them. He'd been patient with them. He'd uh, chastised them with captivity and return. So there was no excuse for Sodom. God is love. But sometimes that love is selective. Sometimes its manifestation is particular. Then God's love is loyal and it's seeking Do you remember Manasseh, lest we should despair? Manasseh was one of the cruelest, most savage kings of the whole of the Old Testament. He filled Jerusalem with blood, including the blood of the prophets like Isaiah. He was a witch. He practiced witchcraft, which God hates. He practiced idolatry right in the midst of the temple to thumb his nose at God. And no doubt some of his family members might have said, he's hopeless, he's gone. He's half in hell already. But the extraordinary thing is God called him and wooed him and persisted with him right up to near his death and eventually he turned back. God's love is tenacious. God's love is loyal. God's love is seeking. And our friends, it is a glorious love. So whilst on the one hand it is selective in its deepest manifestations, it's also a seeking love, a calling love. God's love warns. God's love warns. Look at this very letter. Look at John himself, the apostle of love. In the first verse, he says that some of his fellow preachers are false prophets. Is that loving? Is that love? Of course it is. He's warning. He's saying, don't do that. Don't carry on down that path. Again, in verse 3, he says that some of his fellow preachers are motivated by the spirit of Antichrist. An opposition to Christ. Is that love? Of course it is. If it's true, it needs to be said. It needs to be warned. And again, at the end of the chapter, he says, some of those who claim to be Christians, if a man say, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He's a liar. He's living a lie. It's a pretense. It's a sham. It's a hollow pretense. Is that loving to say that? Of course it is. Listen to any mother as she speaks to her children. And you'll hear her warning and calling and directing. You won't hear her using soft soap much of the time. She has to warn. She has to call. She has to direct. And then God's love is jealous and fiery. Some people say, well, this is a primitive notion associated with the old deities. You look at any bridegroom with his bride, and if other men start chatting her up and start to draw her away and flirt with her, See his anger, see his fury, see his indignation, see his jealousy. Real love, love that's concerned for the long term, love that cares, love that serves, is jealous love. And it can be fiery. Do you remember again in Leviticus 19, he says, 
You shall not hate your brother in any wise, nor suffer sin upon them. If you love them and not hate them, you'll see the sin in their lives as something deadly. You'll see that fornication, that adultery as something dangerous, that vile temper as something poisonous that spoils their family, spoils their home. You'll see that pride as the most lethal of venoms, something that ruins and spoils them. One of the most challenging chapters in the Bible to read is Matthew chapter 23. It's where the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to the Pharisees and Sadducees before the cross. And he's excoriating. His words are searingly hot. Searingly hot. Now I'm sure that most uh, human rights lawyers today would say it was hate speech. But they're wrong. It's all love. It's all love. He's trying to avert them from hell. He's trying to divert their path down the course towards everlasting loss. He's trying to show to them their own nature. He's warning them. He's calling them. This love is fiery and it's jealous and it's concerning. And it is also a possessive love. It's a love that is exclusive. It will not take second place. It will not take an inferior rank in our lives. You can't put God below other loves. Look, for example, friends, at what the Saviour says in Luke chapter 14. Don't need to turn with it uh, to it with me. He says this, very strong words. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, He cannot be my disciple. What does it mean? Does he mean really that he expects them to be hated? That he expects them to hate them? Of course not. What he means is they must take second place. The beloved must come first. The love for God must be put in first place, in proper place. And then other things will fall into place. Why do you think perhaps this is a... This is a rather exaggerated statement. I wonder if you remember Perpetua and Felicity. We spoke about them before here. Two martyrs in Carthage. Two young women. They'd just given birth, both of them. And the Roman authorities very cruelly decided to persecute not the seasoned old Christians, the pastors and the elders, but the young Christians to try and put off conversions. And what they said is they would be sent to the games and killed. And these two young nursing mothers were faced with this terrible choice. Either they follow Christ and forsake their children, forsake their babies and face certain death and give their children into the hands of others, or else they return to their families. Which would win out? Well, both of them, without hesitation, chose Christ. And we remember them now. Perpetua and Felicity. His love is possessive, and exclusive. But at the same time, this love overflows. This love, once it's experienced, once it's known, overflows. Once we receive this love, we cannot but love others. It doesn't diminish our other loves. It strengthens them. It doesn't weaken our love for our parents or our brothers or our sisters. It greatly strengthens it. Even our enemies become our beloved ones. Even those who are cold and hostile, we pray for, we bless. 
you remember David, King David, and Mephibosheth, because of his experience of Jonathan's love and Jonathan's sacrifice? How could he not overflow that love to his son, Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth, the cripple, comes before David and says, I'm a dead dog. Why are you bothering with me? I'm useless. I can't do anything. And he says, because of your father. Well, for Christ's sake, we are to become lovers. Once we experience that love of Christ, he changes us. And this love transforms. Sometimes when a young person falls in love, we see their behaviour changing quite dramatically, don't we? We see them changing their clothes and sprucing up. And their voice and their language changes, at least for a short while, <laughs> for a few months perhaps. And uh, they, uh, uh, they uh, change themselves. Well, this is a much more profound change than that. This is something that completely transforms the life forever. Forever. Do you remember Saul of Tarsus? As he was going up to Damascus, breathing out threats and slaughter. That was his atmosphere. That was what he was breathing. That was the uh, oxygen that was keeping him going, breathing out threats and slaughter, malice and suspicion and a fanatical determination to destroy the churches. And yet, what happened to Paul? He becomes a gentle, nursing father. When he knows the love of Christ, when he gets hold of this love of Christ, how greatly he's changed. When he's scourged and beaten and shipwrecked and, and dealt with like scum, how does he respond? With the same ferocity, with the same pugnacious fighting character he had before, like a lamb, like a lamb, like his saviour. And he even sings in the prison and he even prays for those who have persecuted him. And why? Why is he so different? Because he loved me gave himself for me. This is a love that overcomes. Do you remember Stephen? The furious crowd that he addressed wanted almost to eat him. They were gnashing their teeth on him, the scripture says. They stopped their ears, they shouted out, they didn't want to hear any more of what he had to say. And yet, how does he react? Lay not this sin to their charge. He prays to them. Love conquers the hearts. Well, the third question. How do we know this love? Look again at verse 16 of chapter 4. We have known and believed the love that God hath to us. How do we know this love? We certainly see it in creation. We certainly see something of the love of God in creation. We see the amazing fullness and beauty, spoilt though it is by the curse of his provision. We see... Uh, the care of animals for their young, for example, and we see the most tender characteristics of God revealed. Walk in a park, walk by the sea at dawn, and you see the glorious beauty of his kindness and his goodness. Or look up at the stars at night, and you see something of the amazing care and beauty of God. Or walk into your supermarket and see the shelves packed, crammed full with so many different goods, and we see something of his bounty something of his goodness. We see it in providence. We see it in answer to prayer. You think of Dunkirk, for example, when 200,000 soldiers were trapped in that death trap as the uh, Nazis were approaching and national prayer was called for and the weather and the sea and the ships all miraculously aligned 
to enable an extraordinarily large escape. We saw it in Malta when General Dobie, the governor of the island, maintained his calm and the Bible readings and the prayer meetings on that island when Luftwaffe threw a huge weight of bombs, far more than was thrown at London on that small island, and yet it stood like a rock. So we see God's providence and his love in provision. We've seen it in our own experience in the church, in the way the fence was raised, you can read about that, and of course each Christian has his own experience. But that's not where we see God's love best. That's not what really persuades us. Look at verse 19. The fountainhead of his love is this. We love him because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. And how do we know this? How do we see it? How do we perceive it? The word in uh, chapter, in verse 16, we have believed, it can also be translated persuaded. We're convinced of it. We're persuaded of it. Life is tough. Life can be very difficult, very rocky. People go through some extraordinarily hard experiences. Where is the persuasion in the face of death? or in the, the face of severe suffering, that God still loves us when we're tempted like Job was. Well, look at verse 14. We have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. Not an example, not a teacher, not a prophet only, not a king only, not even just a priest, a rescuer, a saviour. Oh, friends, we don't just need an example or a teacher. We don't just need a few divine lessons. We need extrication. We need salvation. We need deliverance from the stony, sinful hearts we hold. And oh, friends, in Christ there is that Saviour. Look at verse 9. In this was manifested the love of God towards us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live, that we might live through him, from death to life, from being loveless to being loving, from being unlovable to being lovely. Here is the work he works. You can't make a stone loving, especially if it resists you, (laughs) as our hearts do. But here, friends, is the work of Christ, that he delivers us from death into life. From lovelessness into love. Or look at verse 15. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. You see the parallel with love we saw earlier on? Once we see who God is, once we see this relationship between the Father and the Son, once we see that there is love within the Godhead, the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Holy Spirit conjoined with them and we see that the father who delights in the son and prizes the son whose very beloved is the son exchanged him for us he exchanged his beloved for us don't you see what that means it means he loves us like he loves him worms like us he loves like him how can we not Feel and sense this love in return. And then verse 10. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. 
This is a sacrifice for sin, but it's a very special kind of sacrifice. It's only used a couple of times, I think, in the New Testament. It's he bore the anger of God against us. He is the lightning rod for our sin. He bears our curse, our the indignation that God justly feels against us for our sin. He carries it. Justice was fully satisfied against us and our sin if we turn to Christ in him. In him. God exchanged him for us. God bore in his son our guilt and our shame in his son if we turn to him, if we seek him, if we ask him, and if we turn to him, he has buried our death and our guilt in his tomb. Look at chapter 5 and verse 1. Again, he speaks of believers. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is born of God. A new birth. Or friends, here, if we yield our future and our lives and our priorities to him, if we follow him, not just saying that Jesus is the Christ, not just believing it in our minds, but if we, if we trust in it, if we depend upon him, if we look to him, as he calls us to, as he commands us to, if we ask him for that, then there's a new birth, a new miracle, a new, a great change is made out of us. And uh, something very profound takes place. A new heart and a new love is born in us as we trust in the cross. There's nothing in us. There's nothing in us. There's no real love in us by nature. There's no real merit in us. There's no real righteousness in us. Our fountain is in him. He is the vine. His is the sap. His is the light. His is the sole righteousness upon which we depend. Oh, friends, love God. Love the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know him tonight? Do you know his commands? Do you know his call? Ask him for this love. Ask him for this new heart. Ask him to change you and to bless you. Ask him not to pass you by for his dear sake.